Did you know using your browser in incognito mode doesn't actually protect your privacy? Take back your privacy with IPVanish VPN. Just one tap and all your data, passwords, communications, browsing history, and more will be instantly protected. IPVanish makes you virtually invisible online. Use IPVanish on all your devices, anytime you go online at home and especially on public Wi-Fi. Get IPVanish now for 70% off a yearly plan with this exclusive offer at IPVanish.com audio. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. of the Talking Mets Podcast here on this Monday, July 4th. Happy 4th of July, everybody. Of course, if you want to listen to the show, go to MetsmorizedOnline.com. You can pick it up there. Available on iTunes or any other podcasting application that you so desire. If you want to send me a tweet, at Mike Silva Media, always looking forward to hearing from you. And you can send me a personal note, MikeSilvaMedia.com. A little bit uh, later edition, holiday edition of the show. Figured to get this out on the 4th of July. We're taking a little bit of a different stance today. Looking back in time, a large portion of the show, uh, we'll get to the current Mets in just a minute. But Dan Epstein, the author of the book Big Hair and Plastic Grass and also Stars and Strikes, Baseball and American, the Bicentennial Summer of 76, will be joining me later. We'll get a chance to talk about baseball in the 70s, a little something different, especially considering the book that he came out with about a year or so ago which is now available in paperback, Stars and Strikes, separate, uh, celebrates the Bicentennial Summer of 76. It's Fourth of July weekend, so I thought I'd throw that out there. Also, a very historic Mets game happened on July 4th, July 4th, 1985. And a while back, when I was doing my NYBD podcast, uh, we used to look into this game and had a chance to uh, – Many years ago, catch up with uh, not a player on the team, but somebody who probably had the best seat in the house, the uh, the trainer for the Mets in the 80s, Bob Sykes, at Bob Sykes on Twitter. Bob is on Facebook and Twitter, and, and he does follow the current group, and he's always great at sharing some stories about his experience being with that team. But figured to say, hey, Bob, come on. Let's remember some of those uh, July 4th, that July 4th, 85 game. Wanted to get his take on some of Lenny Dykstra's comments uh, earlier this week about David Johnson. And uh, he still follows the Mets, and as someone who was involved in I- injury and prevention, or prevention and uh, recovery, I should say, is is probably the better way to put it. Uh, get his thoughts on how the Mets are handling this pitching staff, and maybe some of the ways that things have changed since when he was involved with the team, and where it seemed like not every injury was reported as uh, you know nine one one there on the uh, on the media meter. So Bob will join us in just a little bit, but. 
Certainly, let's start where uh, this uh, current Mets team, every week, and we are now not the – this is the official halfway point of the season. Next week with the All-Star Game is the unofficial where you'll have the, the four days off and the festivities and the home run derby. And I'm such not an All-Star guy, and I'll get to that. That's plenty of time for that next week. But right now we have an 88-win Mets team. This is now the halfway point. It is amazing, like I said – how quickly this season goes, as much as a, a long grind it is, 180 days, 162 games, it goes by quick. I was laughing listening to the broadcast earlier today as Keith Hernandez basically said that you count up to 81 games and now you count down from 81 to uh, 162. And he's probably doing that now because of his broadcasting responsibilities, but it, it is an interesting way to uh, to look at it. But Every week we've kind of had this roller coaster with this Mets team trying to figure them out, and they threw another monkey wrench into it because I got to tell you, after the Washington series, the lack of energy, uh, the way that the offense just looked like there was no way out, I was prepared to really uh, sit here uh, on this uh, you know Monday now and start to contemplate whether or not this was a team that we'd even be talking about in terms of contention, and I still have concerns and. I'm going to try to rationalize what we saw with the four-game sweep of the Cubs this weekend from the the magical, the narrative, and also the practical. I'm going to try to piece this together because I've been thinking a lot about it to figure out which is the real Mets team. You know, What is the team that uh, we can realistically expect going into the now second half of the baseball season? Because what you saw over the last four days is is the really good. What I guess we saw in Washington was the really bad. Where is this team now falling into? Now, I do think that Brandon Nimmo, with his useful enthusiasm and maybe his goofiness, and I think the the, the booth, both the Darling and Hernandez, compared him to Hunter Pence. And if he has anywhere near the career of Hunter Pence, then the Mets have themselves a real dilemma between he and Conforto, and maybe not because, you know, Granderson's only got another year on the contract. But we'll, we'll put that in the parking lot right now. Uh, I do think Brandon Nimmo coming up, has created a couple of things. Gives you a little jolt and a spark, and I think that that dugout was very. Uh, I don't want to say lackadaisical because that's not a fair assessment. They're a very professional team, and I, I don't think anybody's there not trying to go out there and and compete at a high level. I just think it was a team that's been sitting back, waiting for the three-run home run, and for a while there, especially the last couple of weeks with the Atlanta series and the Washington series, maybe waiting for things you know bad to happen. It's almost you get into that rut when bad things happen. You start to, well, well, this is going to be the error. Is this going to be the hit? Is this going to be the inning when things fall apart? And that hit, although it did not on Thursday tie the game, but got the Mets within a run um, against the Cubs in a game where if the Mets lose the first game to the Cubs, you know, it's it's now a four-game losing streak. You got three, you know, you got Arietta, you got Lester in front of you, and you just, you're not feeling good about yourself. And you're starting to fall, fall further and further out of the, the NL East race. And now you're deeper into the muck with everybody else in the wild card. More important on Thursday, what I really think the spark may be, is the Familia Houdini Act with the bases loaded and one out, and then the second and third nobody out. I mean, that was, to, to, to pull a Cubs reference, that was vintage Mitch Williams. Except the only difference is Mitch Williams would walk, you know, and Familia did start the inning with a walk. He would walk at the, the ballpark and then strike him out and get out of it. And pull a high wire act, but you know, Familia on the consecutive save streak, the feeling of well, here we go, 
the Cubs on this magical carpet ride. You just knew. You're like, hey, either Brian's going to blast the home run, or even after there's two outs, you're waiting for Baez to get a bleeder hit, something bad to happen, and it didn't. And the Mets got out of it. And I think that's the kind of win that you can look at and say later in the season as you get to the postseason if things turn around. Well, maybe that's the turnaround. I laugh because last year everybody talks about Wilma Flores crying as being the turning point. They lost that game. A lot of ways to me the turning point of the Mets season happened against the Nationals on those three games at home. And there was a middle game in that series where they came from behind late. I think it was a due to double. To me, that's the, the swing right there. And then the Mets go and they sweep the Nats, and that's where the, the carpet ride started. Is this going to be something similar? I don't know. But that, that, that's something to, to bottle and to think about. And now they have to leverage it this week. They have to leverage it starting today uh, uh, on Independence Day against the Marlins. They have the Nationals coming in for a four-game series. And then you've got to say to yourself, okay, going into next week, the celebratory halfway point of the season – are the Mets going to be still in the muck? Because I think they will be, um, but 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 out of really or north of five games in terms of the division, which to me doesn't really put them competitively in the division. It puts them at a safe distance. Or can the Mets hold serve at least with the five games uh, deficit with the NL East over the next couple of days and and then go into the National Series and maybe do a little payback, take three or four, and, and gain a couple of games and maybe be two or three games out, depending on where they are going into the All-Star break. Now you have something. Now you're, now you're in, in a situation where you're within striking distance, and those games in September are going to matter. You don't want to get into September where you're six, seven games out where you have to beat the Nationals every game. You, you just can't do that. It's not a realistic situation. Now, being, you, know, you look at the wild card situation as of this morning. Uh, sure, you know, the Mets are right there with uh, – with the Dodgers, with the Cardinals, you know, the Pirates are starting to, after struggling of one uh, four in a row and starting to make their move. Uh, I still don't know what to think of Miami. They brought in Fernando Rodney, who, you know, had a terrible year last year, and I still think is kerosene on the fire and a very obnoxious player on top of it. So another reason not to like Miami. But um, you know, the Dodgers have issues with Kershaw now, and you don't know about his health. The Cardinals have had issues all year, being up and down. You know, Pittsburgh hasn't really been. Great, uh, they're a 500 team, but now you know is that the is that the muck you want to be in? Um, because there's no guarantees that you're going to get through this. And let's think about this: if you really want to make a run in the postseason, there's no doubt that winning the division is going to be the much easier route when it comes down to it. Because do you want to try to have a playing game as a wild card, then probably face the Chicago Cubs, who will have the best record in baseball? In theory, if things continue that way, although the best record in baseball is is certainly now jammed up there between the Cubs, the Nats, and, and the Giants. So there's no guarantee that that will be the case. Or do you want to win the division and 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 maybe have just have one less stressful postseason game? It really this team will show me, I think, over the next few days what we're really headed for the rest of the summer. Are they going to be competing with all these other teams that are going to be the first, second wild card? Are they going to seriously compete with the Nationals, who have been playing well after playing horribly going into the series in Washington? Now, that, you know, from a, from a logical standpoint, now we talked about the Nimmo and the, and the magic carpet ride and, and Familia getting out and providing a spark. I think there's a couple of practical things that, also playing into the Mets playing better. I think first competition, Nimmo coming up, 
and giving the Mets options also makes Granderson and Lagares and Deaza, who's still on this team, start to say, hey, I, I got to figure out a way to kick this in gear because I'm going to be on the pine. Nimmo could replace any of those guys. And Lagares just coming back from, from, uh, from of course, the, the, the thumb injury. Also, the Mets have really played a lot more road games than home games. And they're a 500 team on the road, which I think everybody at the end of the year will sign for. And the Mets weren't, they were a little bit better, I believe, than 500 last year. So it wasn't like they were road beaters last year. Uh, and now they have a chance to, to beef up a little bit at home, albeit against difficult teams. But that's what you want to do. I mean, that's where the Mets were so tough at City Field. Even last year, early in the year when they were struggling offensively, they were a tough team at City Field. So now you could really beef up at home, and now all of a sudden you can look at the record, and it's not as bad as what it seemed just a few days ago where this was basically a 500 team. So um, that to me is, is the practical way to look at it, is that they're finally playing some home games. They've had more road games than home games, and naturally a team's going to play better at home. Also something with the, with the trade deadline three weeks away, can this team improve? And I was thinking about that because you saw the offensive explosion over the weekend. I really think, and Sandy Olberson has basically said this, I don't think there's a cesspitous type of move out there this year. Not just because they don't have a Michael Fulmer. And I don't think you want to give up Dominic Smith or Ahmed Rosario, some of your top offensive prospects, just for anybody, unless somebody really falls into your lap. I think what you have here is a team that is going to have to figure out the players there offensively if they're going to play to the back of their baseball card, that old cliche, you may, you know, you're going to get a race that's going to come in and he's going to be another offensive piece that I think will help. I don't know what kind of race you're going to get, but you're going to get a race nonetheless, unless something crazy happens, injury, or he just shows you, I know he hasn't hit a lot, but you're going to have him in the, in, on the roster. I think you're going to need a bullpen arm. I don't feel comfortable with Godell or even Jim Henderson coming back and giving you the seventh inning. Those guys should be further down. I don't feel comfortable at Robles in the seventh inning. I feel very comfortable at Reed and Familia. You basically have two closers, so you're going to have to go out there and look for a bullpen arm. And I'm not talking Waldis uh, Chapman or Andrew Miller type. I'm just talking about a real solid seventh inning guy. Maybe it's just like the Tyler Clipper move they made a, a year ago. Maybe Tyler Clipper's available at Arizona. I don't know if you want to go that route and bring him back. Uh, you know, I've heard Ryan Madsen and guys like that. So here's the other thing. Stephen Matz is start to start. He pitched pretty well this weekend, grinded through a, a little over a five-inning start. You might need another starter because you don't know what's, what's going to happen with Wheeler and what you're going to get when he comes back. If Matz decides to have the surgery, which sounds like is what he wanted to do before the Mets brass talked him out of it, you're going to need another arm. So where are you going to go? Because you have DeGrom, you have Syndergaard, you have Harvey, you have Cologne. And thank God for Cologne, right? Everybody was ready to push him into the bullpen early in the year, myself included. You have Mats right now. I guess Wheeler could slide in for Mats if the pain becomes intolerable, but I don't know what you're going to get coming off a of Tommy John surgery with Wheeler, and and the setback already makes me a little bit nervous about it. I don't know how much you want to have of Logan Verrett and in the rotation. Sean Gilmartin was very disappointing in some of his relief outings. You may be able to go down to the minor leagues and bring up a Gabriel Noah. I mean, Montero still seems to have struggles in the minors. It looks like he's going, his career is going nowhere. So where do you go? You, you might have to bring a veteran arm in here at some point, and those cost. So you might need pitching, believe it or not, versus offense as you get later in the month, depending on what goes on. You certainly need another bullpen arm. So that's where, as the next few weeks as well, 
let's see how this team comes together and the needs that come out of it. But it is critically I'm – not, I'm not overstating this. Over the next few days, it is critically important for this team to build on this momentum, to build on what they've done this weekend against the Cubs, and really make a stand on this homestand, make a, put a stamp on it, and go into the All-Star break on a run. Not saying you, you run the table here, but taking five of the next seven games going into the All-Star break, hopefully south of five games out in the division, and firmly in the wild card right now, maybe two or three games up in the wild card if possible, I think is, is essential. They need to leverage what they've done over the last four games, an exciting holiday weekend for Mets fans, and certainly now getting a little bit interesting as, we're, as we get into the meat and potatoes of the baseball season here. We are now in the second half to see where this brings the New York Mets. Hey, let's take a quick break. When we return, I'm going to have Bob Sykes, former trainer of the Mets. We're going to remember that July 4th, 1985 game and, uh, and chat a little bit about the current team with him. Later on, Dan Epstein, the author of Big Hair, Plastic Grass and Stars and Strikes. Go back and remember baseball in the 70s a little bit. Dan is also, uh, if, you're, if you're a music fan, big music guy, Rolling Stone. So, um, you know, one of, the, one of the good guys I've run into as uh, you know, I've made my way through uh, media here. Finally, we've been giving away these fanessentials.net gift boxes. It's like a service that you sign up for, but in order to get you guys to try it, and, and they've been a supporter of the show, I've been doing these little trivia things on Twitter to give them away. I'm going to throw the trivia question in the final segment. So that if you listen to this and you're the first one to tweet at me with the answer, you get the box. So you just got to make sure that, uh, you know, when you tweet at me, I got to get you know, the email address and everything so you can sign up. So we'll do a little bit of that at fanessentials.net to wrap up the show later on. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast here, holiday edition, 4th of July. Happy 4th of July, everybody. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. And he is It's over as camp goes down on strike. And listen to the hand from these fans here for both sides, really. We talked about this. Well, what an effort. In 19 innings, the Mets win it 16 to 13. We'll be back with the totals right after this message. Mets podcast, a little trip down memory lane. It's July 4th weekend, and I thought, what the heck? It's uh, over 30 years ago, but uh, let's remember a, a pretty popular game in Mets history, wacky game, and someone who probably had the best seat in the house. I don't care if you were in the stands, but is uh, joining us. I've talked to him in the past on other shows, podcasts, and what have you. Bob Sykes, former Mets trainer at Bob Sykes on Twitter. Bob, uh, Mike Silva here in New York. Uh, any memories come back listening to some of those clips from, uh, you know, actually John Sterling's in one of those clips from the Braves broadcast. Yeah, was it really 16 to 13? Yep. Was that the score? Football score. Oh, my word. There was, golly, I, I'd forgotten the score. I didn't realize there were that many games. runs. How many? 16 oh, runs, my word. Hits, two errors, 13 runs, 18 hits, three errors for the Braves, 19 innings, and six hours. 
and 10 minutes. So I figured, oh. you know, it's been a while. Did you, I mean, do you remember anything about that night? Oh yeah. I remember, I remember it vividly. It's, uh, you know, that probably that along with, um, uh, along with game six at Houston the next year, it's the, uh, probably the most famous game I, I sat through in my seven years with the Mets, but I remember it very well. It was my first year uh, with the club, first year, my first year in the major league. So I, you know, I remember that first year probably better than any year. Anything in particular? Now, if you go back, I'll tell you some some interesting things. Doc starts the game in the midst of that great season he had in '85. Only goes two innings. Um, trying to find some stuff. Looks like there was a rain delay. Tom Gorman actually does a quality start. Now, he's the guy that gave up the home run to camp. He went six innings in relief, yeah. gave up three runs. Right. You know, that's a $10 million a year pitcher now if he wanted to yeah. get out there. And, uh, you know, a friend of the show and someone I know pretty well, Doug Sisk, poor Doug, four innings, blown save, uh, did not give up any runs, blew a save. I know that was a tough year for Doug. And then Ron Darling, a starting pitcher, gets the save uh, and strikes yeah. out camp to end the game, you know, the big uh, Rick Camp. So interesting uh, – you know, some blasts from the past, some names in there. And three guys get 10 at-bats, Backman, Hernandez, and Ray Knight. And Hernandez hits for the cycle. Yeah, yeah. I, You know, one of the, a lot of people don't know that, you know, some of the little tidbits about this game are, are, are what's interesting is that Doc wasn't supposed to start that game. Uh, I, I don't quite remember when it was. It might have been the night before, but we flew in. Uh, from someplace, and I remember at the time we ha- we all had those little pocket schedules of, of of our game. We all carried around in our wallet, and then Davy and Mel Stottlemyre got together and uh, looked at the schedule and realized if they moved up Doc a day to pitch this game, they could get three starts out of him before the All Star break instead of two. Or there was some other point, and so he wasn't originally supposed to pitch that night. And so, he, to be honest, if, if, if Doc was not happy about having to pitch that night in the first place. And so, after the rain delays, it took forever to get that game started. And I was sitting with Doc in the dugout before that. We were outside in the dugout watching it rain. You know, we were both from Florida, and we both shared this love for watching these massive rainstorms come in. But it was really pouring down he shared with me he wasn't he wasn't really happy about having to start that game anyway because it was off his schedule and of course when he when he got taken out after that 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 second rain delay he was really mad (laughs) basically basically did a relief uh appearance now do you remember when a pitcher gets up rick camp looks like the game's over guys an 074 hitter for his career uh do you remember the reaction after he hits the home run to tie the game Yes. Um, obviously, there was a lot of incredulity, and uh, there was a bit silence of shaking their heads. And finally, what happened was we had a pitcher with us named uh, Bruce Bereni. And Bruce, and, and at this time, the old, the old state of Atlanta, you could stand up in the dugout and put your arms on the edge of the on the edge of the dugout that was level with the field. And finally, Bruce Perrini just, just turned around and started laughing uncontrollably. And he came over, did Steve Garland and I, the other trainer, were sitting together on the bench. And then everybody kind of came con- congregated around us and started laughing. Finally, Mel Stottlemyre 
came down and he started laughing too. The only one who wasn't laughing was Davy. You know, Davy stayed down at his end down there, but the rest of us were laughing. And uh, you know, so on and on we went. And that that was the time I think you know it was it was it was really late in the evening, and and there was there was just there was this time. You remember there was a point where Daryl uh, Daryl got thrown out of the game, and then and then Davy got thrown out defending defending Daryl. And, you know, David, and the home plate umpire, I'm sure he was tired, was Bob Engel. And Bob Engel, uh, you know, Davey said that's a blankety-blank call. And, and, um, and Engel said, well, it's a pretty good, pretty good call at 4 a.m. in the morning. And then, then the great line, best line that came from the dugout all night was from Danny Heap, who said, this is the first time I've been up at 4 a.m. and been sober. <laughs> so that was uh, the, the legends about that being, uh, for the most part, a hard drinking club. There, it's very true. That that is true. And curious because um, you know, talking about the current Mets in, in this weekend, I look at a game like that, sixteen thirteen. Mets were a ninety eight win team that year, but they didn't. They, they took off late. I mean, they were only six games over five hundred at that point. Uh, being on a club, being in that dugout, I know baseball is so much about that moment in individual sport and. At times, we, we overrate the momentum factor. But does a game like that, being around a team, uh, maybe create some momentum? Because that's a big win. You know, as crazy as it is, you put a lot of effort. And you guys must have been exhausted at 4 a.m. physically from just a long night. Yes, yes. Everybody was exhausted. Uh, thankfully, the next day was, I believe, the next game was a night game. Uh, and, and, of course, the fireworks went off anyway. Uh, at, at 5 a.m., but it was July 5, I think, when the, when the fireworks went off. And so there was, there was something to do about that. But yes, it does. It does bring a team together. And I kind of thought about the, uh, I watched the other, uh, the other afternoon that, that extra inning game between Cleveland and Toronto. Uh, how, uh, you know, I know that Cleveland, they, they really seem like they're on a roll right now. And so I, when you have a game like that and you win it, that really does bring a team together. It really does. And I always and I and I really think to, they to add, yeah, Mike. To, to add to that, I you know I really think that 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 win probably sustained itself. It 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 did a lot for that team, not only through that season, but I think even into the next season too. I mean, that was my point. I asked Doug Sisk. I said to me, 1985 is really the springboard for 1986. I mean, the Cardinals. They might have played a little over their head that year, but if you really dial into that team, I mean, they just had offense up and down. The pitching was okay, but they were relentless in playing them, and obviously the Mets fell a little short. You were there, and I know that we're celebrating the the 86 uh, celebration earlier this year, but to me, the 85 season was really where 86 started, at least you know from an outsider's point of view. I think so too, and and uh, you know we 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 did come up just short in that in that series at uh, at St. Louis at the end. But really, I think if you look back at it, the season was probably lost earlier in the year because if you recall, uh, that was Roger McDowell's first year, and he had had emerged as a as a significant contributor out of the bullpen in front of Jesse Orozco. He's badly sprained his ankle. And we lost him for a period of time, and then Daryl uh, uh, tore up his thumb and had to have surgery, and we lost him too in '85. So we lost uh, Daryl for six to eight weeks, almost two months, I believe, and then we also lost uh, Roger for for a month to five to six weeks with a badly sprained ankle. And so, you know, you, and we understand that today, losing a 
a key setup guy is almost like losing an everyday player. Um, you know, so I think that was those were the really the two injuries. Uh, the why we lost. I think that certainly cost the team about five to ten games. I, I used to kid Doc Gooden that that it was his fault we lost. We lost in 1985 because if he hadn't lost those five games, we'd have won the division. That's that's right. I with me. You know, 25 and five. It says, yeah, if he hadn't lost those five games, we'd have won. Bob Sykes, former New York Mets trainer with the uh, 80s Mets, joining us. Remembering the uh, July 4th, 1985 game, Bob also still still a Mets fan, still catches up with the team. Uh, you know, one thing I'm curious, Bob, you look at the uh, that team that you were on, and there's so many guys either in management, uh, broadcasting with uh, Hernandez and Darling, Backman's the AAA manager, uh, Roger McDowell's a pitching coach. Are you mm-hmm. surprised a little bit? Because everyone talks about what a – hard partying bunch. I mean, even Lima Zilli's in, in a position with the Yankees. Are you surprised at, at how many guys have gone into broadcasting management and have stayed in the no, game? No, because, no, I think because they love the game. Uh, I, I think it's because it meant so much to them. And, and I think that's why they, they stayed in. You know, we've seen Ray Knight get in and out, and, and other guys have been in for a while, been in, uh, you know, Ed Lynch for a while was, was in baseball and, you know, it does. It doesn't surprise me in the least because they loved it so much, and no. you know they were good at. It. Some of those guys are really personable too. You know, the guys that have that have uh, you know that are in broadcasting, particularly Keith and Ronnie, they're extremely articulate and bright guys that uh, that that were students of the game and and extremely intellectual people. You know, they're always interested and curious about things outside the game. So. To see them emerge as communicators, if you will, uh, is not uh, is not surprising. You know, also uh, in the uh, the news lately, and I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, is Lenny Dykstra. You know, Lenny recently got out of prison. We all know some of the issues he's had off the field and the steroids and, and things like that. And he's been actually very critical of the 80s Mets. One thing I agree with him on uh, he's been very outspoken about uh, Game 4 of the 88 NLCS, about Davey's decision to leave Doc in. But he's been overall critical of Davey, blaming Davey for his trade from the Mets, uh, criticizing Davey as being too hands-off with the team and maybe getting involved in some of the off-the-field drinking and partying, whereas uh, maybe that team needed more of a disciplinarian type of manager. Uh, any thoughts that you have, because this is a lot of revisionist history, and I don't know if his teammates necessarily – Agree. At least I know Ron Darling, one of his teammates, has has come out and pretty much defended Davey. All right, uh, I agree with Ronnie. Uh, uh, I've always disagreed with uh, some of the uh, characterizations about Davey. Uh, there was one particularly that really bothered me that a writer, that a writer, um, a New York writer, wrote that Davey was the bartender for the team, and I, I, I thought that was a that was out of line and. and you know that drinking was a bigger part of the game back then, and and you know of course that was that was a, uh, that was a drinking team. But every everybody, there were very few teetotalers on that team. You know uh, Carter, George Foster, Mookie, uh, Tim Tuffle. You know there weren't there weren't many that didn't drink. So, um, and of course Steve Garland didn't drink. My 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 good friend, my good friend and tra- and, and that trainer didn't drink. But uh, you know Lenny wasn't the easiest guy to to communicate with either, and and. Uh, and uh, rather aloof, and, and, and I think Lenny's problem with Davey really stemmed from the fact that he wanted to play every day, and, and we were a better team when we had 
him and Mookie platooning, and then it got worse. Uh, you know, when we when we acquired Kevin McReynolds, and and uh, they had to go back to the platoon system. And so I, I, I think Lenny always always felt that 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 Davey was, uh, you know, the reason that he just didn't succeed in New York, didn't succeed like he wanted to. Do you believe Lenny that he didn't start taking steroids until he was in Philadelphia? Yes. Interesting. Because everyone figured yeah. 88 when he came bulked up. That was always the demarcation line for a lot no, of people. No, I, I don't think it, 88, I, let me see, he was, he came in, I, I remember he came in one spring. It might have been his last one. I, I can't remember the last year. Uh, he, he was, he, I think he was traded in 89, I believe, yep. uh, for one Samuel. I can't believe that. It might have been that spring. He did come up bulked up, and I remember – I remember Keith Cedro kidded that said, "Don't worry, he'll sweat it off and and camp." And he did. Uh, I think the the ultra bulk up. I think that started in Philadelphia. He didn't he didn't do it in, while he was with us. You know, moving over to this team, I I look at how the current administration is managing the pitching staff, and I was I was gonna I was gonna ask you this question because the other day, um, I was saying on Twitter because Ron Darling was on the broadcast recently saying how he had elbow pain for many years while he pitched for the Mets. And we never knew about it. You knew about his injuries, his broken thumb, and so on. But back then, there was no social media. If these guys had pain or they were taking cortisone shots, uh, unless something really leaked from an anonymous source, you didn't know about it. Now, it's like, hold your breath. They're going to the hospital special surgery. Um, You know, bone spurs with these young pitchers. are, Are we making such a big deal about this? Whereas back during your time, this was common, and they either pitched through it, and uh, at times, it wasn't even Tommy John surgery. There's probably guys on that staff that probably needed it and just found a way to get through it. Now, I'm not saying that's the right thing to do, but sometimes I think we just, we, we're getting overly paranoid with every aching pain that these guys have. You know, we did not have um, uh, any Tommy John surgeries while I was with the Mets. Uh, the only elbow surgeries we had, we had a couple of guys with bone spurs in, in their elbow that were cleaned out, Doug Sisk and Roger McDowell. Uh, Bobby Ojeda had his ulnar nerve rerouted, uh, and if you remember correctly, Bobby pitched in '87 again. You know that he came back at the end of the season and pitched again, which I, I think is always a, a, a testament to how tough a guy he was, or probably still is, I'd imagine. Uh, but I think they, it's clear that they look at um, their starting pitchers, their young starting pitchers, as as more of an investment now. And so they, they do treat them with kid gloves more. The, the increase in, uh, in the incidence of Tommy John surgeries is, is really disturbing, but not surprising. Uh, Bobby Ojeda had, had said, really uh, said something I really agreed with a couple of years ago, and that was, he says, look, we, we start doing this to these kids far too early. He says, we're asking these little undeveloped arms to start doing things at ages 8, 9, and 10. He said, that's far too soon. Um, and, uh, and I think it, 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 it carries on. If you, if you look at all the all starting pitchers in baseball are the same body type. You know, they're these 6 foot 4 to 6 foot 7 guys, and they all went to a uh, a big a, a, a big SEC or Big Tens or ACC school and and uh, you know that's 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 who they are these days and so uh, it's 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 a lot different than it used to be I you know 
the last time I, I, I visited spring training in 2006, I thought I was at, uh, inside a basketball locker room, you know. It's just a different time now. Yeah, it's a different time now. They're all they're all huge. It was interesting when I when Davey came back in 2010 for uh, the Mets Hall of Fame induction. I think he got a little annoyed. I had a one on one with him, and I was talking to him about Doc. And at that time, there's a this is when they were really starting to amp up about pitch counts and innings over year over year. And you look at Doc; he pitched about 190 innings in '83 in the minor leagues, and then Davey brings him up in '84. He pitches. 218 innings, and then 85, which we started the, the segment talking about, Doc is up around 276 innings. Now, Doc had issues off the field, but if you everyone remembers, Doc's shoulders started bothering him a couple of years later, and there is a decrease in performance after that 85. And I said to Davey, I said, did you overpitch him? And Davey got really mad at me. And he even said that how Lasorda got mad at him because Valenzuela found out that Davey had him on 100, you know, Doc had Doc on 130 pitch count. And uh, and how he actually was conservative. So it's interesting because you know back then were you guys doing all this stuff that behind the scenes that we see now, pitch counts and year over year innings and and things like that. Well, we kept pitch counts. We kept pitch counts. But to uh, uh, but to defend Davy again, Dave Davy was just using his starting pitchers the, the way the starting pitchers had always been used. Do you remember? Who's Davies' model? Davies' model is the old Baltimore Orioles with those, uh, you know, with those four four great starters that they had, you know, and and you know they didn't have bullpens and 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 so on and so forth and and uh, I, I think Davy was just doing the reflection that it was just managing in a way that reflected the, the philosophy of the time, uh, you know, guys would would finish games uh, no matter how young they were. Um, and so I, 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 no, Davey didn't overpitch him. I, I, I think we, we began to to get concerned. I think I think we, I, I knew that Stottlemyre tried to get Doc to do some some things differently starting the next year, but as far as him overpitching him, no, you, 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 that was the time when you've got the best guy on the mound. He stays out there. And if you look at, there's certain guys in the game that that stay out there. Of course, they got her. Look at Kershaw. Uh, Kershaw stays out there. Of course, now he's out with a, you know, with a back problem now. But, you know, that at the time that's what we did. And so judging Davy in hindsight is is not fair. I, I understand that. I'm with me, Bob Sykes, former Mets trainer in the '80s, uh, talking about that crazy game in '85, remembering the '80s Mets, and also getting his idea on on some of the comparisons of practices that were going on then that, you know, versus what's going on today when. When you look at uh, repeating, and the Mets aren't repeating as world champs, but they're coming off a World Series. They've, they've gotten off to a sluggish start. Um, you know, there's always that debate in, in the radio, blogosphere, whatever have you, you know, as this team kind of contend, do they need a spark? You've seen Brandon Nimmo come up the last few games and maybe give them a little spark. Again, there's always the debate how, how legitimate is that? Is that real or is that just media-contrived uh, talk radio type of situation? What do you see with this team? You've been on a, you know, you've worked for a Mets team that was trying to repeat and also got off to a, you know, a slow start. And you also are on a team that got a spark late in the year with Jeffries coming off an 88. So knowing mm-hmm. that this team kind of is at a pretty critical point, July is when you really got to start getting serious, even though there's a wild card. You know, is there any comparisons you can make from when you were at the Mets with maybe some of the things you're seeing on right now with, the, with regards to repeating as well as maybe the spark they're getting with a young player coming up with some of the energy you've seen from Nimmo 
in his first few days in the, on the club. Yeah, I think it's uh, – if you look last year, the the spark really – everybody will always talk about uh, the, the acquisition of Cespedes, but, I, you know, the spark really came uh, earlier than that with the acquisition of, of Juan Uribe and Kelly Johnson. Uh, you know, just to get two veteran uh, players in the clubhouse, uh, productive veteran players and, and good clubhouse guys uh, in there gave, you know, gave an immediate spark. Uh, and, and you know, in my opinion, uh, they might have been able to, to you know, to, to to win the division even without Cespedes. But Cespedes, of course, made the team special. Uh, it's always important. I I I think they've really kind of done the right thing in in, in that uh, relied on assets that they have. Uh, I'm, I'm sure they're excited about Brandon. Uh, you know the. I think the when when Reyes arrives, I'm sure that will be a spark because I think I think Jose will be will be energized, and I think Jose will provide energy, and and it's good that uh, Sandy's able to add these two players into the clubhouse right now without having to give up assets, and I think the Mets really don't have the kind of assets they had last year. I think I heard Sandy say that he gave up. He, they made they traded 11 pitchers uh, last year, something like that, and so they they don't have the assets they once had, and and so they're, they're they might be able to get by on the cheap. I, I think I, I don't think anybody you you really can't you really can't be fair about assessing this club until you realize this. Hey, look, you know they, they you know this, it's a team that's playing without David Wright, without Lucas Duda, and we just and we just got. They are no back, and so they've been playing without those guys and, and not doing a bad job, really, because they're playing about 500. And what have they done now? They've, they've taken three straight from the Cubs. So, uh, you know, we'll see. We'll see. I, I, I The spark, I think, is on the way. I think it's on the way. And interesting, they were right back in town this weekend, and there was a cover story earlier this week in the New York Post, basically an op-ed from a writer imploring David Wright to retire. Now, I've said that my limited knowledge, I'm talking WebMD knowledge here, that what David Wright has, with the stenosis, with the disc issues in the neck, it doesn't lend itself well to him coming back and being an everyday player. I'm not the expert. Um, we know he means a lot to this team because of who he is, how long he's been there. Uh, what are your thoughts? As someone who is uh, in the field of health with players, knowing what he has, um, what are your thoughts about that, and, and are you looking at a, a player that potentially could buck the odds and, and become maybe not an all-star or top-five player, but someone who could give you a lot of third base versus going out and finding a lesser replacement? Well, I think David's a special guy. Um, and if anybody can, can overcome what he has, it's it's him. But, you know, David's dealing with two things, you know, with the with – the, uh, you know, the stenosis to begin with, and now the neck problem. So, you know, he has a lot on his plate. And so I would imagine that he will try. He'll try. Uh, but I, but I, think it's, I think everybody needs to uh, support him in his efforts. And then if it doesn't work out, I think everybody's just going to have to understand. What do you got coming up, Bob? We've, uh, we've, we've talked to you before. I know you blog. You're on, on Twitter, at Bob Sykes. Anything that you got going on? If Mets fans want to follow you, ask you a question, I'm, I'm sure everyone's always interested in something about there. They grew up watching the 80s Mets. 
there's never a shortage of questions or interest in a story, no matter how old it gets with that team. Yeah, I, you know what I do is I, I, I follow – there's a couple of, there's a couple of uh, 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 Facebook pages that I follow and occasionally comment on. And so uh, that's, that's, where I, that's where I make my, my things. I was, I was rather vocal in my, in, in my criticism of Sandy last year, and then I, I made a complete turnaround when, when, when I realized that what Sandy was telling us was the truth. Uh, uh, last year, remember he was saying, "So look, the market's not not developed yet. These you know, these players aren't developed yet." And I, you know, and and and, and some the members of the media were having a field day with him, and, and of course I was too. But I, I I've come back. I, you know, I kind of trust the guy. But I I, I look to I, I will occasionally comment on on the team on on Facebook. I'm I'm writing about other things right now. I'm writing about politics, but. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, and I'm enjoying that. I, the writing is, is, uh, is something I've always done even before I got into baseball. And I'm, I guess now being a teacher, I, I've got, I need to work about five more years that I can retire. So I want to have something that I can do when I retire and not just play golf and fish. Awesome. Well, Bob, thanks a lot for your time. Appreciate it. Be well down in Florida. We'll catch up again, and we know you'll be watching the Mets, and it should be an interesting rest of the season. Appreciate a few minutes of uh, of catching up here. Mike, I appreciate you calling. Enjoyed it. And that's Bob Sykes. Check out Bob at Bob Sykes. Uh, some real interesting uh, memories there during that segment. Let's take a quick break. When we return, Dan Epstein, author of the book Big Hair, Plastic Grass, Stars and Strikes, talk about baseball in the 70s and the bicentennial year of 1976. His book, Stars and Strikes, Baseball in America in the Bicentennial Summer of 1976, is now available in paperback. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. I am your host, Mike Silva. We'll be right back. How would you like to get all your favorite Mets merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out fanessentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team. In this case, it'll be the Mets. And every month, you get Mets gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with some amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at $34.99. Visit fanessentials.net and use promo code TALKINGMETS at checkout for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all the essentials you need. Baez pops it up. Loney waiting for it to come down. And the ball game is over. Tremendous comeback by Familia. The Cubs had second and third and nobody out. And Familia extends his save streak. Matches the number on his back with his 27th save of the year. And the Mets win a thriller from the Cubs, 4-3. to three. And Nimmo cracks one. Deep right center field. Looking up Hayward. It's out of here! Brandon Nimmo's first Major League home run. It's a three-run shot. Nimmo hits one to Wyoming, and it's 7-1 to one New York. <laughs> and Nimmo has got a nice compact swing working. He's got a little Hunter Pence in him, doesn't he? He does. Good call. Fans want a curtain call. And he obliges. We're back. Mike Silva, Talking Mets Podcast, and I'm happy to have with me, uh, he's been a friend of the show, I've had him on before on other programs I've had, award-winning journalist, you probably know him from Rolling Stone, if not, you're probably familiar with his book, Big Hair and Plastic Grass, 
but he's got another book that's pretty appropriate for this weekend, uh, for the July weekend, Stars and Strikes, Baseball in America in the Bicentennial Summer of 76. It's Dan Epstein. You can check out Dan on Twitter, at Big Hair, Plaz Grass, Grass with one S. Dan, happy 4th of July. How you doing, my friend? <laughs> happy 4th of July to you, Mike. I'm doing great. So what was America like in 1976? Forty years ago, here we are you know, in a world of baseball that probably is unrecognizable to young Dan Epstein. I was born the following year, and it's unrecognizable okay. to me when I started watching baseball in the mid-'80s. So give us an idea about baseball in America as we, uh, as we embark 40 years later here on Fourth of July weekend. Yeah, it was, a, it was a different time. I mean, I, th- I think probably the most important thing that was going on in the sport in 76 was this protracted battle between the MLB Players Association and the owners over uh, basically what would become full-scale free agency. Before 1976, there had been a handful of free agents, but um, there hadn't been an end-of-the-year feeding frenzy where players walked away from teams they'd been with uh, their entire careers uh, and, uh, you know, put themselves on the market. And uh, so that really kind of hung over the 76 season, the sense of, you know, things were about to change pretty drastically in the economics of the sport and the way the teams are put together and in the way that fans rooted for their teams because they're so used to having their favorite players be with their favorite team for their entire careers. And this is all about to uh, undergo a fairly radical change. Um, And then, you know, this is all happening against the backdrop of the bicentennial celebrations, which was America's 200th birthday. And that was a whole thing in itself. This was like the first full year that America had been out of Vietnam, uh, was not at war anywhere in the world. Uh, and was really kind of all the darkness and divisiveness of the late 60s, early 70s, uh, was kind of shunted aside for a little while while we all kind of uh, embraced our inner Ben Franklin as opposed to our inner John Wayne and celebrated the American experiment. And, uh, you know, and that that celebration took the form of everything from historical reenactments to, um, uh, you know, local parades, uh, local, uh, every town had its own bicentennial celebration, but then there is, there were bicentennial logos on pretty much every product you would buy in the store. Every magazine had a special bicentennial issue. It was just like, you know, it was, it was almost kind of mass hysteria really like this red, white, and blue, uh, swath celebration that, uh, you really couldn't get away from. Now, uh, you wrote Big Hair and Plastic Grass, which was basically baseball in the 70s. Now, when you follow up, you pick 1976. Why 1976? Was it just because of the bicentennial? Uh, was it due to the uniqueness of the season? Uh, all of us as kids, you know, we have that era, and, and there's probably one season that we remember more than others. I'm, I'm wondering what made you pick 1976. Well, a couple of reasons. I mean, one of which, you know, a couple of which we've already talked about, you know, the labor dispute and free agency, the bicentennial celebration. I mean, that's a really interesting cultural context to put it all in. But also, I just felt like it, it was it was a season filled with so many interesting characters. I mean, not even on the field. Uh, off the field, you've got Bill Vec coming back and buying the White Sox for the second time. You've got Ted Turner buying the Braves. You've got 
uh, George Steinbrenner kind of coming back in after being suspended for two years. You've got Charlie Finley presiding over the dismantling of his his A's dynasty. And then all these incredible, interesting players, Bill Lee, uh, Doc Ellis, Reggie Jackson, uh, all all going, Richie Allen, Dick Allen, uh, just all going through these very interesting periods in their career. Um, and and it's kind of the rise of the, the Bronx Zoo Yankees. This is the first year that they're really good again after a long time. Uh, it's it's a great it's a great year for the Mets uh, at least. I mean it's 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 one of the most successful seasons they've ever had. Unfortunately, they're in the same division as uh, uh, as the Philadelphia Phillies, who kind of run away with uh, with, with the NL East. But uh, you know you have Jerry Kuzman coming close to winning a Cy Young. Uh, it, and it was the year of Mark the Bird Fidrich. This is you know this incredible season where this rookie pitcher comes out of nowhere for the Tigers and then within two months of his first major league start becomes this kind of pop cultural icon who transcends baseball. And, and then that's the last full season he ever pitches. So it was, it was just an incredibly colorful period. And I think because the world series that year was such a dud with the big red machine, just kind of crushing the Yankees four games to nothing. um, People, people tend to overlook the importance of the year, uh, the, the, the fun of that year. And, uh, you know, they, they talk about 75 or 77, which are also really interesting seasons. I mean, I think just about, you know, any season in the 1970s is incredibly compelling subject matter, but, but, you know, no one had touched us, had touched 76. And so I thought, well, that's the year for me. I, I have with me Dan Epstein, journalist, author of uh, Stars and Strikes, uh, Baseball in America in the Bicentennial Summer of 76. With the 4th of July weekend upon us, I figured it would be a good chance to look back in time like we like to do over here. You used the word colorful, and i got to agree with you. I mean I started watching baseball in the mid-'80s, uh, really started understanding sports in general in the 90s. And I, and I look at it today, and I know I'm going to sound like an old fart now, uh, Dan, but, and I'm not. I'm only 39. I'm going to sound like a 60-year-old old fart. <laughs> But I'm like, you know, I look at George Steinbrenner and the wackiness that the dysfunction of firing managers and hiring managers and what Charlie Finley tried to do with selling off his team and Bill Vec and, um, you know, the pill top caps and things like that. And I'm saying to myself, the baseball in 2016, you know, 40 years later is so corporate. I mean, could you imagine a team doing what George Steinbrenner did not in that season, but bringing out Billy Martin back on like old timers day while the manager that's currently employed is still standing there. I mean, think of the antics that go on and yeah, the way absolutely. That, that, uh, Finley tried to do it. I mean, it's just, it's like a, it's like a, a cartoon. It doesn't seem real by today's standards for some kids who all they know is the corporatization of baseball as we see it today. Oh, absolutely. I mean, or, you know, you look at what Bill Veck and Ted Turner did during the 76 season with, you know, all kinds of crazy promotions. Bill Veck, you know, having the salute to Mexico night where all the players run out on the field in sombreros or, or when they're, you know, or he put them in, they, he redesigned their uniforms uh, that, that actually included short pants, which they wore in three different games. The only in a time in Major League history that uh, a, a team has worn short pants in the field. Just like all the stuff that, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was definitely to get publicity and to get people down to the ballpark, but it wasn't in that kind of cynical, 
uh, you know, you use the word corporate, and I think that's really uh, on the money. That 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 sort of cynical, cynical corporate way that you see that the special giveaways or special uh, events uh, they do with MLB now, or like you know the 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 way they they have you know multiple iterations of of uh, home and away jerseys and caps and batting practice caps and jerseys all so that they can sell them in the store. I mean, it wasn't like that then. If you went to a ball game in 1976, you were lucky if you could buy like a plastic batting helmet uh, from the souvenir shop. You know, it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't like this where you'd go and like, you know, spend a drop $150 on some, uh, uh, on, on a, on a, a repro jersey or anything like that. And yeah, I think there's a lightheartedness to it too. I mean, you, Ted Turner uh, being in, you know, involving himself in ostrich races uh, before games, where where he's, you know, uh, he's, he's got a he's riding a chariot pulled by an ostrich. I mean, what owner is going to do that now? You're not you're not going to do that. So uh, it's it's yeah, it's it's very it's very festive. It's very colorful. It's very lighthearted. Um, and and no, I, I mean, also, I mean, I was 10 years old in 1976. That was the year I first fell in love with baseball. And that was the year of the Bad News Bears, the, the original film. And, you know, all these things kind of come together in my mind to to really, it, it, it's a very certain specific flavor uh, that 1976 has. It's, it's kind of rebellious, but it's also fun. And uh, it's not a flavor you find any time in the last 30 years in baseball. And and Dan, the one of the central figures is uh, the bird, Mark the Bird Fidrits, a rookie of the year, second in the Cy Young, uh, top 15 in MVP. And I look back, and his numbers are really good from a standard perspective. But a guy like that, with only you know less than five strikeouts per nine, and and a walk rate almost as high as his strikeout rate. Today, geez, I mean, Dan, the stack guys would pull him apart and give you a thousand reasons why he was destined to be the poster child for uh, one and done, you know, fizzle, fizzled out. Uh, it's interesting because he was such a big part of that story of that season. Yeah, I mean, it's true. It's, it's like I think he struck out 97 hitters in 250 innings that season, which which I don't think anyone has ever struck out or anyone since then has struck out less than 100 uh, hitters in that many innings. Um, so, I mean, he, he, he was not a guy who threw gas. He pitched a contact and, uh, and yet he was, he was a very smart pitcher. He, um, I mean, we'll never know what, how good he would have been had he, he, you know, stayed healthy, but, um, but yeah, I mean, he was, he was pretty dominant that year. He, he, uh, made 29 starts, completed 24 of them, which is extremely insane uh from the modern day perspective but but you, you know you, you talk about the stat guys and it's like at the same t- time you have to look at if, if you're going to go into the advanced stats with him i mean the guy had a 9.6 war in in 1976 this that's like three whole games over jim palmer who was the cy young award in the al that year that's uh 4.3 higher than Thurman Munson, who was the AL MVP that year. I mean, it's it's like if you, if you're going by WAR alone, like that guy could have could have uh, taken home the Cy Young and MVP as well as the Rookie of the Year award that year. I would meet Dan Epstein, author of the book uh, Stars and Strikes: Baseball in America in the Bicentennial Summer of '76. 
I was doing a little bit of research. I was unaware that uh, there was some talk of interleague play, I guess, before the season started. Is that true, that there was actually some talk about the model that we have today to a certain degree being employed back in the late 70s? Yes, and, and this is actually something – I'm glad you brought that up. This is something I had no idea about until I started researching uh, Stars and Strikes. Um, this was this was actually – it was they were talking about it before the season began and actually during the early part of the season. Basically, the issue was that Seattle was going to have to have a Major League franchise in 1977. In 1976, Seattle became the first and only – City, city in history to successfully sue Major League Baseball for a team. This was uh, the result of the Seattle Pilots being spirited out of town after only one season under uh, some pretty dubious circumstances uh, that Bud Selig was actually involved in uh, getting them to Milwaukee to become the Brewers. The, and the, Bud Selig yeah, right. something underhanded. There's a shock. And it was so it was so sketchy that 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 the court just had to go like uh, yeah uh, baseball you need to get these guys a team so uh, the team that would become the Mariners was a pretty much you know was already on the books for '77 so there was then talk of um, of, of well so the, then a team was going to be put into Toronto because basically the uh, the Labatt's people had had bought the San Francisco Giants and were going to move them to Toronto uh, until at the last minute Mayor Moscone in San Francisco stepped in, got a court order and said, no, you know, the Giants are staying. We're going to find local ownership to take care of this. So kind of as a consolation prize, um, the Major League Baseball said to Toronto, okay, you can have, you know, you can have an expansion team next year. But there was a big faction in the National League that wanted Toronto as a National League team, so there would be a rivalry with the Expos in Montreal. And uh, so the the choice was either between Seattle and Toronto uh, expanding the American League to 14 teams in 77, which is what eventually did happen, or uh, the American League would take Seattle – the National League would take Toronto, and that would give uh, give Major Leagues 13 teams in each league. And the only way you'd be able to make that work is with interleague play. And so that was that was actually on the table for a while, and then not enough. Uh, you couldn't get enough owners from either league to sign off on it. So, um, and and for other reasons, it also made more sense for for uh, the uh, the team that would become the Blue Jays to go to Toronto. But yeah, it's 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 all part of the craziness of 76. And you mentioned the Mets. Actually, as bad as they were in the late 70s, this season, from a Mets fan point of view, and I, again, I didn't, I wasn't alive, so I couldn't speak for them. I'm not a 70s, uh, I didn't grow up watching the Mets in the 70s. 86 wins, uh, obviously no pennant race because of the fact that the Phillies were just so good. Makes you wonder right. if there was a wild card back then, what, what could have happened. There might have been a little bit more excitement, but Mets were quietly good, and is there anything more 70s Mets than Dave Kingman? 37 home runs, 86 RBIs, 28 walks, almost as many walks as home runs, 135 <laughs> strikeouts. Um, you know, I wonder how many of those 37 home runs came in a key moment. I don't have those numbers in front of me, but, uh, you know, Jerry Grody, Ed Cranepool, you have, of course, a really good – I mean, typical Mets, a really good pitching staff. Seaver, Matlock, Kuzman, Skip Lockwood having a great year as the closer, but not enough offense to compete with the big boys in the National League. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, they had no offense other than Kingman, really. Um, and, and for a while there, Kingman looked like he was on pace to match or break Roger Maris's record. I mean, the, the balls were just like flying out of the park every time, uh, you know, every, every time the Mets would play. And it was, it was all off Kingman's back. That and uh, I, mean, I think he hit the longest, what's probably the longest home run of his career and what's considered to be the longest home run ever at Wrigley Field uh, in, in the spring of 76. Um, uh, a ball that like flew over Waveland Avenue and ended up like three houses uh, up Kenmore. Um, and, uh, and then he breaks his thumb diving after a ball actually hit by Phil Negro of the Braves. And uh, so, so he's out for a good portion of the season, still finishes with 37 home runs and the Mets in desperation try, um, Oh, and you know, I always get these two guys confused. It's either Pepe Frias or Pepe Manguel. One of the, one of those two guys they went and got from Pepe Manguel. Uh, got from Mont- Pepe Manguel. Pepe Manguel. That was it. Yeah. So so that they got they they and and the Mets are not drawing anybody at this time. I mean, the Yankees are back in in Yankee Stadium for the first time in three seasons. And, you know, the Yankee Stadiums have been renovated. The Yankees are under Billy Martin and winning. So all the attention is on the Bronx. And the Mets are desperate to get get people over to Shea. And, you know, some bright bulb in the Mets front office thinks, well, if we get Pepe Manguel, uh, we'll increase our, uh, you know, the Puerto Rican contingent in the crowd. Like, we'll, you know, we'll be able to market the team to to the Puerto Rican community in New York. And Pepe Manguel is just so terrible that, like, nobody, uh, you know, no one is fooled. No one comes to the game to to, to see him. And it's it's you know, it's it's really. I mean, obviously the Mets don't trade Seaver till '77, but you know, even with 86 wins, you can see the start of the slide uh, in '76. For sure, hey, but 21-year-old Lee Mazzilli came out that year, and uh, he would be a star shortly thereafter. So there was there, that was the guy they should have been marketing. I mean, but uh, they decided to go a different route. Uh, interesting. Yeah, how, I think. Uh, I think yeah, they did. They did eventually catch catch on to uh, to Lee's marketability, but you know, by that time it was just it, you know it was too late for the rest of the team. And you know, pop culture music is obviously a big part of of what you do. Tough question though, when you think of 1976, and this is probably not you know going to be an easy for you to answer, but what song comes to your mind? There's so many songs and references of the 70s that are great. What comes to Dan Epstein's mind right away when you think of 1976? Oh, uh, more than a feeling by Boston. I think uh, I, that that was one of the big albums of 1976. In fact, it was the best-selling uh, debut of all time uh, for for you know for many years after that. And uh, it, it that to me just like really sums up the state of rock in 1976. It was you know it was it was big. It was very clean, but not not sterile. Uh, very melodious, uh, lots of layered harmonies. It just that just screams 1976 to me. Think about the walk-up music you would have had though if they had it back then. Well, I think uh, you know I, I, I get asked this from time to time. I think uh, if I had a walk-up song, it probably would be "Slow Ride" by Foghat, both because it rocks and because uh, I, I've never exactly been a speed demon, shall we say? <laughs> 
two other pop culture references I want to bring up before I let you go. One, which you've recently written about. Uh, I'm a big Stratomatic fan. I still play the computer version. Uh, I remember Excellent. getting the cards and dice back in the uh, you know when I was young. Um, a little bit easier to play now. It's a little more complicated cards and dice if you want to do a, a, a real uh, deep rooted Stratomatic season. But you, uh, you you know you recently talked about that, and I know 1976 was when you were introduced to the game, as well as uh, references to the Bad News Bears, which is one that I haven't. Uh, heard in a, quite a long time. I keep thinking of them playing in the Astrodome. Isn't there one version of it? I've watched them. I just yeah. kind of meld it together, like which one. But I remember the <laughs> Astrodome one uh, for some reason. That That's Bad News Bears and Breaking Training, which is an okay film and definitely has its moments. I mean, that that Astrodome scene is pretty iconic. Uh, plus, it has Bob Watson and Cesar Cedeno in it, so that's uh, that's pretty great. Uh, but the original with Walter Matthau as the coach – and Tatum O'Neill as uh, Amanda Wurlitzer, uh, is, uh, that came out in the spring of 76. And that film blew my mind when it came out. I was 10 years old, went with a bunch of friends uh, for a friend's birthday party to see it in the theater. And it was like, you saw, it was like we saw ourselves on the screen. It's like all these kids up there, they, they, they swore a blue streak. They were, cynical they they you know question authority they uh you know were unwashed they had long hair i mean this was this was us and that was that was a huge thing for me in terms of of getting interested in baseball up to that point i i was more of kind of a a military history buff you know i'd play with my gi joes and read books on the american revolution and stuff like that but I saw that, and it just like it looked like it made playing baseball, little league baseball, look like so much fun. And I just wanted to be out there on the field with my friends, and you know, uh, talking smack and uh, uh, you know, running around and and having a blast. And and uh, you know, I, I think looking back at that film, I, I really believe it is the best baseball movie ever made to this day. It's really it's really light on sentimentality. It really says so much about baseball as a team sport and as a reflection of America. Uh, but it also really, um, you know, it, it, it's just filled with, filled with great performances. And it, it's one of the few baseball movies that, that I, I think ages well. I think you go back and you look at, I mean, I think Bull Durham has, to, has aged uh, pretty well uh, and a few others, but, free of cliches, which is such an unusual thing for, 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 for a baseball film to be. Um, you know, I, I just, I just really think that it, it, it also reflected that period of time, that, that period of, uh, you know, kind of cynicism and rebellion in, in American culture, uh, a kind of unwillingness to conform to societal standards, you know, that, that might've been in place even five years ago. And uh, you know it, it's 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 a remarkable film. I, I urge anyone who uh, who hasn't watched it or hasn't watched it recently, such as yourself, to uh, uh, to, to check it out. And uh, like I said, I really liked your piece recently about Stratomatic as a Stratomatic baseball fan. Being that, that we watch the Mets here on a nightly basis, because usually once a month, Keith Hernandez throws a Stratomatic reference, whether it's a, a fielding rating or you know uh, you know a reference to something that he's you know, one of the teams he's played on. Uh, you were introduced, I guess, to it during that that year of 76, started playing the cards and dice, and 
I know as life goes on, I'm sure like me, you, you get busy. It's hard to keep up playing a game, so to speak. But to this day, I don't play any of these video games, Call of Duty, these high – I'd rather play a game of Stratomatic than any of the graphic-generated stuff that I see today. Oh, I know yeah. that probably sounds yeah. weird to somebody in the audience, but that's, that's still what I play. Absolutely. I mean, and, and I've tried playing various, uh, you know, uh, baseball video games through the years, and, like, it all – they've all – made me want to go back and play Stratomatic. They, they they just, none of them have the realism, and I don't mean, you know, uh, you know the realism of graphics. I mean the realism of results. In Stratomatic, you have, say, you have 1976 Jerry Kuzman pitching in, in a game. Like, he will, he you know, he, he will deliver the goods like he did in 76. It's 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 a, a fascinating game, and yeah, it, it, like I first got into it in '76. I, I saw ads for it in the back of like the Sporting News, and or uh, it was by Baseball Digest, and and I was so enthralled by the idea of like, wow, you could you could play teams that are made up of you know his, actual historic major leaguers, and you can you know you can change the order around you can um you know set the rotation your way you can i mean one of the reasons i i actually bought when i first bought stratomatic baseball i I was so bummed about how the 76 world series ended i thought like well if if i am managing the 76 yankees i will surely uh, achieve a better result against the 76 Reds than Billy Martin did. And, uh, of course, uh, e- even not playing Fred Stanley, which was, was my main uh, strategic uh, move, uh, I, I never was able to, to, to beat the, the Reds more than uh, uh, once or twice. Uh, for sure. No, I, I hear on that. Uh, before I let you go, what do you have coming up? I mean, music-wise, Baseball-wise, um, anything you want to talk about, let the fans know about. Uh, obviously, they can follow you at, at Big Hair Plus Grass at uh, with one S on Twitter, and uh, give us an idea of what's next for you. Well, um, uh, I've got a couple of book ideas, but nothing's uh, nothing's really set in stone yet. Uh, I think that the most exciting thing that uh, I've got or I've been involved with recently is uh, uh, the MLB Network actually uh, has done a documentary about Mark the bird fidrich and i'm in that and that's uh that debuts on uh sunday july 10th and then uh i don't know if you have any listeners uh in chicago but i'm doing a special i'm hosting a special screening of the bad news bears on august the 8th at the music box theater here and also uh doing some uh you know signing of uh my book stars and strikes at that and you know, just be kind of a celebration of 1976 can I let the list? I think you you are a Cubs fan. You were a Tigers fan growing up. The National League team is the Cubs. What's your baseball? Right. F- you seem more like a baseball guy than a, like hey, Dan Epstein is a Tigers fan or a Cubs fan. But is, are you bleeding Cubby blue? Is that what fair to say? Mm, not as much as I'm bleeding Tiger uh, Tiger orange. You know, it's it's uh, I, I I I'm very happy to see the Cubs doing well, and it's. Certainly, I've I've followed them through some very dark times, but like if it if if it comes down to a game where the the Tigers are playing the Cubs or a series, uh, I will always root for the Tigers. Hey, Tigers traded Cespedes. Mets got a World Series, and Tigers might have got themselves an ace. So, how many times 
can you say two teams get together, make a deal, and uh, both teams make out? Unfortunately for the Tigers, Doyle Alexander for John Smoltz may have got them a division. <laughs> but maybe they would have been better. Who knows? Maybe that's what the maybe the Mets goes back, and this becomes maybe this is a restitution for that whole the 1987 deal. So, and that was that, that, that happened. I just be. thought of that. Yeah, no, I, it's funny. I was talking about that with somebody the other day. It's like, but, but you know, when you're in the thick of a pennant race, you know, you, you know, nobody knew that Smoltz was going to be a future Hall of Famer. And so it seemed like, like, hey, you know, and 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 the Tigers would not have would not have made it as far as they did in '87 without Doyle Alexander. So it's just one of those things where you, you know, you roll the dice and hope it works in both the short and long term and. And if it works, at least in the short term, well, well, uh, that's better than nothing. Hey, listen, you've been generous with your time. Have a great 4th of July. Uh, good luck on the upcoming projects, and let's do this again, my friend, all right? Oh, anytime, Mike. Great talking to you. And that's Dan Epstein. Dan, author of the book Big Hair and Plastic Grass, Stars and Strikes, Baseball in America in the Bicentennial Summer of 76. You can check out Dan over at Big Hair, Plas, P-L-A-S, Grass, G-R-A-S, one S. On Twitter. Final segment coming up. Stay tuned. We'll do the fanessentials.net trivia question this week. I wanted to throw it out on the podcast. See if you guys actually listen. Sometimes I throw it out and say, hey, on the podcast, you, you know, I said such and such. And if the first person to tweet at me gets the box, and, and I don't know if you guys are just guessing or you actually listen. So I'm going to give you, if you listen and you get to me early, and I'll try to wait till like, you know, midday or late day on Tuesday, probably late day Tuesday with the answer because you listen to it on the podcast you win so you're listening to the talking Mets podcast i'm your host mike silva we'll be right back and flores lines one in the left field and that's a base hit his sixth hit of the game wilmer flores ties a Mets club record six for six Whose record did he tie? His hero, Edgardo Alfonso. Ah. Edgardo got three home runs. Wilmer got two. Hey, Mets fans. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you're looking for the best unbiased and independent coverage of the New York Mets, then look no further than MetsmerizedOnline.com. Metsmerized Online is the go-to place for comprehensive Mets coverage, including exclusive interviews, daily original articles, great weekly features, in-depth analysis, minor league reports, game-by-game breakdowns, and so much more. Find out why thousands of fans turn to Metsmerized Online every day to get the latest news and opinions about the Mets. Coming from an impressive staff of the most passionate fans and skilled writers ever assembled all in one place. Check it out for yourselves, Mets fans. Go to MetsmerizedOnline.com right now. That's Mets, M-E-R-I-Z-E-D, online.com, and get Metsmerized today. Final segment, Mike Silva here, Talking Mets Podcast. So if you guys want, again, go to fanessential.net. Basically, so you guys know what it's about, if you haven't been paying attention, it's a service. Every month, if you sign up for it, you'll get a box sent to your house with, with gear, sports gear. 
and they pick it for you. So if you want, I mean, I would think that you'd want to do the Mets if you're listening to this this program. But maybe you're a Knicks fan, maybe you're a Jets fan, maybe you're a Giants fan, maybe you're not even a New York sports fan of the other sports, and and the Mets are an anomaly. So you can do whatever you want. I'm suggesting the Mets because this is the Talking Mets podcast. Makes it easy. So. Every week I try to give away a free month so that you guys get at least one box, get a chance to, to, to check it out, and, um, and, and, and have a way to support the show if, if you so desire. So this week here is the question. So if you were listening to Bob Sykes earlier today, he talked about the July 4th, 1985 game that lasted until 4 in the morning and the Mets won 16 to 13. And I'm going to try to make this something that you can't look up on baseball reference. But he mentioned a player that said, the last, this is the first time I was up at 4 a.m. and not drunk, is basically what Bob's story was. Who was that player? Tweet at me. The first one to tweet at me on Twitter, at Mike Silva Media, will get the free month of fanessentials.net for them to try out. So for, for now, until they tell me to stop, I'm going to be giving these things away to try to get you guys to try it out. Um, again, if you want to go to fanessentials.net on your own and just without winning and you want to partake in this, you go to uh, fanessentials.net. The promo code is TalkingMets. You'll get 30% off your first month, and, and prices start at about $34.99. Again, I, I'm just trying to make some some money to support the show. Not not telling you guys you have to, certainly. I hate to uh, to push too much on people as they listen to this because – you know, at the end of the day, we we're here to talk content. I'm not here to put a an hour plus commercial at you, but FanEssentials.net's been a supporter of the show, and we want to show them some love. But uh, that's it. Hey guys, um, had a great time. A little bit longer show today. Hope you enjoyed it. Of course, I want to thank Bob Sykes. You can check out Bob Sykes on Twitter at Bob Sykes. I want to check out Dan Epstein at Big Hair Plaz Grass P L A S G R A S. Check out his book Stars and Strikes: Baseball in America in the Bicentennial Summer of '76. I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out on Twitter, at MikeSilvaMedia. Enjoy the rest of your Fourth of July. Be safe, and I'll see you next week.
Did you know using your browser in incognito mode doesn't actually protect your privacy? Take back your privacy with IPVanish VPN. Just one tap and all your data, passwords, communications, browsing history, and more will be instantly protected. IPVanish makes you virtually invisible online. Use IPVanish on all your devices, anytime you go online at home and especially on public Wi-Fi. Get IPVanish now for 70% off a yearly plan with this exclusive offer at IPVanish.com audio. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.